absolute blessing for us to be together once again. Uh, the week is beginning. We're beginning it the right way in the presence of God, seeking to worship Him, to honor Him who has made us and called us to Himself. So thankful for your presence here. It's an encouragement to me. Thankful for those who are online. Prayerful that as we uh, gather together today, we'll be able to help each other by looking into these words from our Lord who will help us then to live our lives the way we ought to and to glorify and honor Him. In this text, the Pharisees and scribes had come to Jesus. They had been around. They'd seen and heard so many things that He had taught. And yet, now they wanted to see another sign. Here is a prophet that has come before them and they're seeking after some kind of proof. He's claiming these things that are amazing to think about. He's been calling himself even the very son of God, and they have sought often to put him down for that. But he told them he's not planning to give them any more signs. <laughs> there is a reason why he calls them what he does here, an evil and adulterous generation. I mean, we're talking about the people of God. These are Jews. These are very religious Jews. These are the people that would have been most respected by most of the Jewish nation at this point. And there was a great expectation in the first century for the coming of the Christ. The Old Testament had been finalized some 400, nearly 450 years at this point. The final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written around 440 B.C. And at the end of Malachi, if I'll turn there quickly, it's the last book in your Old Testament. the end of Malachi, there is a prophecy that's given in chapter 4. Starting at verse 4, I'll begin. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, when I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So the generic uh, teaching of the prophets always was, remember the law of Moses, go back and do those things that you haven't been doing. The reason all this calamity has come upon you is because of your disobedience. So go back and obey, repent, is what the first call is. And yet he says, I will be sending Elijah the prophet. By the time Malachi is writing, Elijah the prophet has been gone for hundreds of years. Uh, he's not speaking physically of bringing back Elijah the prophet Elijah himself had come performing signs. We read about Elijah's work in 1 Kings 17 and that part of Scripture. We're not going to go back and, and read that now, but I want to recall to your mind some of the things that Elijah the prophet had actually done. He had announced a three-and-a-half-year drought to King Ahab and Jezebel, who were horrible uh, uh, leaders at that time, were, were leading Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, astray, were influencing the southern kingdom with their idolatries, and with all of their immoralities. So in 1 Kings 17 and 18, God sends Elijah to announce a three and a half year drought. He says, if you're not going to obey me, then I'm not going to allow you to have crops. I'm not going to allow it to rain. You're going to suffer until you're humbled under my hand and you turn to me. But during that drought, he produced flour and oil for a widow who was about to die. She made the food for him and said, this is all we've got left. We're, I'll feed you and we'll eat and then we'll die. But he made an abundance of flour and oil available for her during a drought. Later, her son comes to die, and he raises her son back to life. And so Elijah had done some amazing signs during his time. 
And of course, 2 Kings 2, perhaps the most famous thing about Elijah that everyone knows is he was taken up miraculously into heaven, riding in that chariot of fire up into, into heaven. And so there's this expectation, as Malachi mentions Elijah the prophet, that maybe he's going to come back. Do you think Elijah will come back? Miraculously, he never died. Maybe he'll come back in the way that he went, and this will be the generation that'll see what an amazing sign. It's been 400 years now, more than 400 years. There's been no new revelation. There have been no signs performed in that time, nothing done by the hand of a prophet at least. And these were terrible years in the history of Israel. There was so much unrest after Alexander the Great had conquered the world and then died at a tender young age in his early 30s. And the world was sort of ripped into four parts by his generals. And the problem is that there was a battle for control over this region of Judea where the Jews were for these mountain byways where north and south would come to get down to Africa or up to the, to the European continent. You had to go through this area. And so there was a need to control this area. And there was a lot of warring going on. That's what we have in the uh, intertestamental period in the books of the Maccabees, for example. So during this time, one of the generals, Antiochus Epiphanes, literally goes in and desecrates the temple of the Jews by sacrificing a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. It's around 168 B.C. at this point. These were horrible, terrible years for the Jewish nation. And so it's understandable there would be a longing for any word from the Lord. What is he planning through all of this suffering we're going through? And now they're under the hand of the Roman rulers, the time that Jesus has come. And so there's this expectation of God bringing glory to his people again, restoring the former glory. And they're expecting then Elijah the prophet to come. But who comes is John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, he comes preaching that the time is near, that the Messiah has come. Matthew 3 verses 1 and 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John the Baptist comes announcing that God is moving again among the people and he's bringing things to them. And so at first, he's well received in Matthew 3, verse 5, Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This is God speaking to us again. And there's this excitement as they go out. We're told in John 10, 41, though, Jesus says, John performed no sign and you listened. When he preached at first, John came out of the wilderness and began to preach this message. And you were so ready for a message from the Lord that you listened, even though he produced no visible sign. The multitudes had believed and gone out to see him and to hear what he was saying. Except the religious leadership. The common people were listening. The religious leadership rejected John over and over. We'll hear John calling them a brood of vipers, saying, show fruits worthy of repentance. Who warned you to come? You're not listening to my message. Why are you here? What do you want? What are you seeking as you come out to this baptism? And over and over, the religious leadership rejects him until finally Herod has him put to death. The truth is, John was the Elijah that Malachi was speaking of. We know this very clearly. It's not something that I'm sort of just hoping at. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. 
as his birth is being announced, Luke 1 verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here the angel quotes from Malachi, speaking of John the Baptist. He is going to be that one. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus teaches his disciples about John the Baptist. Matthew 11 verses 13 and 14. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus made it very clear. John is the Elijah that was being spoken of. Malachi was speaking in a figurative sense of one who, like Elijah, would come. He would come and prepare the way for the Lord, and he would help people be prepared for his coming. And so, the people of God rightly expected to see signs of the Messiah's arrival. This is something that God had always uh, done. And we see signs, Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2, Peter says that what's happening on the day of Pentecost is they're all speaking in these languages they had never learned as this great sound of a mighty rushing wind had come upon them. All of these things were signs that Joel had predicted would happen. Their young men would prophesy and their daughters would have visions and all of these things that were happening there in Acts chapter 2. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, all of this preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the angels come out into the fields as the shepherds are there. There was born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, they said, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. <laughs> that was a sign. doesn't seem so miraculous, but the angels announced that that's what they would find. It would be proof of who they were looking for. And in Matthew chapter 2, in Matthew chapter 2, again, we, we have this expectation and this, uh, this need to see that Jesus is coming. The wise men, the Chaldeans, had followed a sign. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. They were following a sign. They were divinely instructed, we're told. This was not some random chance. So all of this is right and to be expected. And Jesus fulfilled signs before them. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But even with his fulfilling these signs, many still rejected his word. If you'll go with me to Luke 4. They were rejecting him because they didn't like his message that came along with the signs. Luke 4, verse 22 and following. All bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever have we heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And so Jesus did the signs, but he was rejected even among his own. But it's interesting in Mark when he does the sign in the synagogue, they say, what is this? What is going on? Is this some new doctrine? They understood the, the, uh, the, together, uh, the appearance together of signs with new teaching. Because that's what the prophets would do. That's what Moses had done as he brought forth the word. They understood that something new is coming along, but they weren't willing to receive it. They got it, but they didn't get it. 
So there's this first century expectation as Jesus comes that everyone's looking for the Messiah. And there's this fervor as John the Baptist begins to preach. And here in Matthew, the religious leaders have come to him looking for some sort of proof. And they're being hypocrites. Jesus had healed and cast out a demon on the Sabbath. That's our immediate context. Let's go back in Matthew 12 to verse 9. When he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That They might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and restored as whole as the other. The Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Jesus has done a good work. He heals a man, but it's on the Sabbath. In Luke 11, he casts out a demon in the synagogue, but it's on the Sabbath. And he's doing work on the Sabbath, and he's violating their Sabbath, not the Lord's Sabbath. He tells them another time, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I know how to use the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for, uh, for a man and not the man for the Sabbath. Sabbath is supposed to be a rest. And he was giving rest to this man with a withered hand. He was giving rest to the man who had been possessed by a demon. That's what he was doing. He was showing the true sense of Sabbath, not some religious keeping of a day. And so the religious leaders had sought to kill him, which certainly isn't a restful action. In fact, they accused him of being in league with Beelzebub for casting out the demon. He only does that because he's got a demon himself. And so there's this hypocrisy even in the midst of this expectation. Others who had just seen a miracle sought from him a sign. That's what we're seeing here in Matthew 12. They've just seen a sign. They didn't believe in it because it was done on the Sabbath. It wasn't the kind of sign they thought they should get. And so they rejected it as a sign, even though he absolutely proved the presence of God with him. Interestingly enough, when he cast out the demon and they began to judge him in their hearts, he said, why did you think that? Why are you thinking like that in your hearts? (laughs) Who knows the hearts of men? It's God. (laughs) He showed them in three ways at the healing of Uh, of the casting out of that demon and the healing of the lame man, that he is God. He knew their their thoughts. He was able to cast out the demon miraculously. And he claimed to forgive sins. Those things only God can do. And they were unwilling to look at those signs. And so they tested him. And the response then is Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. That sounds somewhat shocking. Here they're coming to Jesus. They're looking for proof that he is who he claims to be, which seems like a good thing. They're seeking for a sign that he is who he claims to be. We need to understand that not all religious searching or seeking is good. We need to seek him in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 4, as he was speaking to the woman at the well, she had her version of religion and was questioning him about what the Jews believed. In John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus' response is, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. She was worried about the process of worship, worried about the place of worship. And he says, you worry about the truth in worship. These Pharisees are worried about process and function and place but are not worried about truth. They've seen the truth. They've seen him confirm the truth before their eyes and they rejected it and said, but show us one more. Let's see something we'll believe. (laughs) Don't just show us what you want to show. Show us what we'll believe. 
And so many people approach religion that very way. So many people approach coming to know God that way. God, I know all of these things, but show me something that'll prove. <laughs> the creation doesn't prove the existence of God. His goodness, as Paul uh, preached to the, the pagans in Athens, he has shown you goodness. <laughs> he has brought good times and plenty for you. There's so much that proves God, and yet people are still looking for signs. And the truth is that the evil-hearted, even if they see a sign, can't judge it properly. In Matthew chapter 12, going back there, verses 32 and 33, uh, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. They see what Jesus is doing, and they accuse him of being in leagues with the devil. They see that he's only doing good, and they say, but he's violating the Sabbath, so he can't be from God. What? <laughs> be honest in your judgment. But if you're evil-hearted, you're going to judge things according to evil motives. They did not want to believe in Jesus, so it didn't matter what he showed them. The truth is, they're adulterous children and not sons of God. In John chapter 8, he lays out the case against these very Pharisees as they're threatening to kill him. I love the way he speaks to them in John 8. And I, I, I would hope that he would be this generous in speaking with me and calling my attention. He says in verse 43 that they don't understand his language for a very specific reason. They are not able to listen to it. You are of your father the devil, he says, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. <laughs> they had been claiming first that they only had one father, and they said it was Abraham. Well, then when he sort of showed them that they weren't sons of Abraham because Abraham acted differently than them, they said, well, our real father is God. And he says, no, <laughs> you can't understand my language even because you don't speak his words. Your father's the devil. <laughs> what uh, um, a rebuke. And you would hope they would listen to that. Some very clearly do. <laughs> On the day of Pentecost, there are some of these who are converted in Acts chapter 2. But at this moment... They're called adulterous children. They're not sons of the father. They're sons of an adulterous affair. That's what he's saying. If you're asking signs and proof that, that I am the father, you don't know your father. You're children of adultery. So expectation and hypocrisy is what has caused them to come up asking for this sign. And here's what they're asking for. The Greek word is semeon. It's a sign, mark, or token. Something that will distinguish one from another, a person from other people? How can you prove that you are the person you claim to be? And often those signs would have been miraculous, a sign, a progeny, a portent, some unusual thing. Make it obvious that you are who you say you are. Something that transcends the common course of nature. That's Strong's lexicon that says that. Think about even the idea of signing your name to something. A signature has the word sign in it. It's proof that that's you who wrote that. And some people are so obsessed with signs that you can imagine writing a letter to someone you love. And the letter pours out your heart. But at the end, you sign your name, and that's all they see. Oh, look at that signature. That sign is so impressive. But they miss the message that the sign is meant to indicate. A sign is an indicator. 
I signed this to indicate that these are my thoughts. This is my feeling. Paul says in the Galatian letter, in the Colossian letter, I sign it with my own hand. He wanted them to know this is truly what comes from me or from the Lord through me. This is my signature. This is my proof. And so I sign in all my apostles and all my epistles. He wanted them to know that his stamp was on that, his, his truth. And so Jesus, they're asking him to prove that he's different from all the others. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, that among the Corinthians, he had truly done the signs of an apostle. They were those who were false apostles who weren't offering signs and whatever they were offering was falseness. He had done enough among them that they believed he was speaking for God and he had proved himself over and over. And so they're asking for some distinguishing mark that Jesus is who he says he is. And here's where their hypocrisy becomes so great. By this point, when they ask him for this sign, Jesus had done many distinguishing signs, things that only God could do. I don't expect us to look at every text here. <laughs> that is a lot going on. I want to read through the list, though. I want you to think about all that these men would have seen by the point they asked Jesus for a sign. First, he's born of a virgin. Now, they've rejected that. <laughs> They'd seen his star. The Chaldeans recognized his star and came from the east. His baptism... The Spirit descended like a dove on him and lighted on him. And people heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That had happened and the Pharisees were present for that. He had healed many people in Galilee. He had healed a leper. He had healed a centurion's servant. He had healed a paralytic man and forgave him of his sins. And then the Pharisees said, Let's kill him. <laughs> he healed a woman who had a flow of blood for more than 12 years. Then he brought back a ruler's daughter who was 12 years old, brought her back to life, Jairus' daughter. He healed two blind men. He healed a mute man. He did healings all around Galilee for a second time as he went around in circuit again. He openly rebuked the cities of Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum because they hadn't believed all the signs he had done in them. In fact, he said, the queen of the south will rise up, Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up against you because if I had done the works before them, they would have repented and you didn't. He healed a man's hand on the Sabbath, which we just saw, and he cast out a demon on the Sabbath. All of those are only the things that are registered in Matthew. And those are only the public signs that he did that people knew about very publicly. There were many other things that he did off to the side that he did in a smaller group. These are only the ones that Matthew records. You can read in John and Mark and Luke and see others. So in Matthew's context, when they come and ask for a sign, this is all they've seen already. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to give you another sign. By this time, he had taught many distinguishing truths. It was obvious from the way he spoke that he wasn't just some charlatan producing illusions, sort of like Simon the sorcerer. In Matthew 5, he had said, I came to fulfill the law, not to reject it, not to, not to turn it away. You have heard it said, but I say to you, that's his Sermon on the Mount over and over, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's not the way the other prophets, the other false prophets had taught. He taught them as one having authority. They recognized it. That's why they said, what is this, some new doctrine? With authority he casts out the demons and they bow before him. They recognize his authority. He said, I forgive you your sins. That's a sign in his teaching. He asked them about why they were thinking things in their hearts. That's a sign that he is God and knows their hearts. Over and over, he would say things like, my father and I are one. 
comparing himself to God and saying he was of the same nature. No one knows the Father except the Son. The Son of the Man is Lord of Sabbath. Again, all of those, only the public teaching done in Matthew. There's other stuff registered in the other Gospels. But in the account in Matthew, where these Pharisees are getting this indictment that they are an adulterous and evil generation, here's all they could have known up to this point. And they said, but show us a sign. <laughs> we were talking today in Isaiah about God's challenge to the false gods. And it is showing that he's the one who's able to meet that challenge. He can predict the future. He can talk about past things. He cannot just allow people to come up with portents, but he can say, my purpose is this. And we were talking about people who sort of just throw their Bible open and hope they get a message from the Lord, pointing their finger at a verse. Some people today still work by looking for some sign from God that they're doing the right thing or that this thing is from the Lord. I don't have any issue with praying about and looking for the response of God and His providence. We ought to be doing that if we're hearing Him first and listening for His will. They had opportunity over and over and over again to hear His teaching, to see the signs that confirmed His teaching, and they rejected it. In Deuteronomy 13, the very first person in the Bible who's given the capacity for doing signs is Moses. You remember the signs as he threw down his staff and it became a serpent. He put his hand inside his clothing and it became leprous and he put it in and it became clean again. Then there's ten major signs that he points to them uh, from the plagues in Egypt. He's the first one revealing God's will to the people. He's the first one then confirming that will with signs. And here's what he teaches about, uh, about signs. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Think about that for just a moment. He's saying there are really two tests for a prophet. One, he'll talk about later. If the prophet announces something and it doesn't happen, he's obviously not a prophet of God. <laughs> if I told him it was going to happen, it'll happen. So a false prophet can first be known if he announces some sign and it doesn't happen. But what if he announces a sign and it happens? What's the other test? The other test here is, what is his message? <laughs> Is he speaking the things of God or is he trying to draw you away from God? And God says here, I'm testing you. I allowed it to happen because I want to see if you're following the sign or if you're following the message. In the New Testament, he talks about lying signs and wonders that are given into the hand of the deceiver to deceive those who don't love the truth. John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus came speaking the word of God and showing signs that were confirming the word of God. It was easy to compare his message with what had been written before. The new things he was bringing to light were tied to the old things. When he's saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's just explaining the law as they were abusing it. He's bringing out the true sense of the law. They didn't want to hear it. If the message does not match the truth of God, the sign is a lie. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul said, if somebody brings a different gospel, if it doesn't match the gospel you've already received, you've already received, the gospel that was, that was attested to you by signs and miracles when you received it, if something else comes along, you reject it. 
and the person who teaches it, let them be anathema, let them be taken away. Jesus has done everything that's required of a true prophet in the presence of men who would say they know what true prophets are. And the truth is, they didn't want to believe. He had offered so many proofs of himself and they would not believe. That's the issue. They didn't want to and so they would not. Again, we're talking about the people of God. This is a frightening thing to consider. That text in 2 Thessalonians where it talks about lying signs and wonders is a frightening thing to consider. If we do not love the truth, we will not recognize lies when they come. <laughs> and we may even convince ourselves that the lies are the truth. We have to love the truth and we have to live for the truth. And these Pharisees were not doing it. Jesus offered many proofs. The confirming of signs is not the problem. Their hardness of heart is the problem. In Luke chapter 16, over and over, Jesus indicts them for their problems. Luke chapter 16, verse 29. Um, this is where the rich man and Lazarus are uh, being contemplated here. And the rich man is saying, send somebody back to talk to my brothers. If they see somebody come back from the dead, they'll believe. <laughs> and Abraham says to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus is going to offer that very proof. It's the last one. It's the last sign he's going to offer. But if you're not willing to listen to God's word, more of God's word, more of God's doings are not going to convince you. You have to have a heart for listening to his word. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 67, they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. <laughs> he's told them over and over that he's the Christ. He's shown them the signs of the Christ that Isaiah talked about, that Joel talked about, that so many others talked about, and they would not see them. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 I love the language that Paul uses over and over in 1st and 2nd Corinthians about the truth and about hearing the truth. But in 1st Corinthians 14, verse 21, he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. The point that Paul's making here is, that he's, he's quoting here from Isaiah, where Isaiah says, I'm going to carry them off. And when they're in Babylon, they'll look back and remember that I told them this was going to happen. I laid it out beforehand. So they would then believe me. But there would still be some there that wouldn't believe. <laughs> they would see that God had laid out even this punishment against them and that he had laid out also that he was going to restore them from the punishment and they would still turn against God. It doesn't matter how big the sign is. If I'm not willing to listen to the word of God, I'm not going to believe. There are many among those who would call themselves Christians. There are many among those that we're trying to teach that simply do not want to believe. It doesn't matter what is shown and what is taught. The only hope they have is to hear the word of God and let it begin to transform them. Those who start out seeking signs and those who are seeking signs today are absolutely declaring that the revealed word is not enough. If you need something else then you're declaring that the, the word itself is not enough. In the book of Hebrews, they, they were declaring that all that Jesus had done was not enough. They wanted to go back. At least they were going back to the word. 
But today there are many who are rejecting the clear revelation of God for something that they can feel, something they think they can see that comes from God, something external that's just one more proof when what we've got here is all. Most who are looking for signs claim they're also seeking further revelation, that God still has more to reveal. That's not what Peter says. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter is speaking near the end of the, uh, the first century, at least the revelator, uh, revelation part. He's in the 60s. The end of the written revelation is, is almost on us at that point. And he says that God, by his divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter over and over says, I want to stir up your, uh, a reminder for you of the things that have already been written, things that have already been confirmed. You have the truth with you already. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul told Timothy that what he had written was enough to make him complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That doesn't sound like something where Paul's saying, but sit back and wait until the rest of it comes. <laughs> Peter wasn't saying, you just keep waiting until God finishes telling you what he's going to tell you. He says, no, you've got what you need already. If it's not enough, then it'll never be enough. <laughs> is it enough for us? We say it is, but do we really give it the attention that shows that it's enough for us? What are we waiting for? Why are we not studying and applying and doing what God says? Where in your life are you struggling to apply what he says? Are you waiting for a sign? Are you waiting for something else to make you move to doing his will? You're an unbeliever if you're looking for a sign. You're an evil and adulterous generation. This is what Jesus called the very Pharisees who asked him for a sign while he was still doing them. The believer looks to the word and says, what next? What else can I do? Help me see it. And he digs in. Jesus said, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. There's a distinction he makes. The idea is he's not giving in to their carnal demand for signs. All they want to do is some, see something else amazing. You think even Herod wanted to see something when Jesus was brought before him before he was put on the cross. Herod was hoping he would do something, do some kind of a sign. Festus later, we see, they, want to see, they want to see Paul do some sort of miracle. They all wanted to see something. But they weren't interested in what the sign is pointing to. If the sign is all you're looking for and you miss the message, you've missed it all. They're reminiscent of Satan. He's with Jesus in the wilderness and he says, If you are the Son of God, then make these stones turn into bread. Come on, do something, prove it. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to do that. He proved he was the Son of God by quoting the words of God. He spoke the, the language of the Father and he thwarted Satan every time by doing that. That's how you prove you're a son of God. You speak the word of God. That's how you prove that you trust in the Father and that you're not a child of adultery, that you've come from some other lineage. If you're a child of God, you'll speak the word of God. If you'll speak the word of God, it's because you know the word of God. If you know the word of God, it's because you're studying it and practicing it in your life. <laughs> Satan was trying to quote the word of God and Jesus said no. It's interesting that these... Pharisees and scribes really doubt Jesus all the way to the very end. They've seen sign after sign. They've heard teaching after teaching. When he comes home to his own, they say, where does he get this great wisdom? How does he know these great things? He's just a carpenter's son. Who is he to tell us what to do? And they reject him, recognizing that he's speaking truth. And they reject him because of who he was. <laughs> and he wasn't who they thought he should be. But in Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 and 42, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down off that cross. We'll believe him then. Yeah, right. <laughs> if he had come down from the cross, they would not have believed. 
1 Corinthians 1 verses 21 through 24 talks about all the wise of this age. They didn't believe. They were so foolish that they crucified the Son of Glory. <laughs> That's how much they believed. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3 says that the Jews have rejected believing in Christ because they want to set up their own system of righteousness and they can't believe because they won't believe. Stephen reminded the Jews when he was doing his great sermon in Acts chapter 7 that they were the sons of all those who had killed all the other prophets. They kept saying, if we see a prophet, we'll believe. And he says, yeah, well, your father said the same thing. You know what? They killed every prophet that came along. They didn't want to believe. In fact, you're worse than them because you put to death the one that all the prophets said was coming. You killed the Christ, the holy and the just one. Signs didn't help them. They rejected all of his signs and put him to death. As Abraham said, they had the law, but they weren't willing to keep it. He told the rich man, if they're not going to listen to the law of Moses, they're not going to, they're not going to be saved. Ultimately, the cross is the sign. It's amazing when you think about the sign of the cross that first starts with death. You must put to death this carnal nature, this carnal seeking for things that are not of God's thinking, that are not of God's way. Jesus calls this the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in uh, the belly of the great fish for three days, Jesus would be in the belly of the, of the earth and tombed for three days. What I love about Romans 1.4 is that he was declared to be the Son of God, it says, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It's the resurrection that, that answers all questions. If anybody doubted that Jesus was the Son of God, three days later there was an answer. <laughs> Any of them had opportunity to go and check it out, but they rejected that and became, became inventors of stories. The Ninevites repented when Jonah taught. They saw way fewer signs than these Jews had seen. They saw the sign of Jonah. I don't know how much they knew. I wonder if he stunk like fish or whatever. How do they know? How much did they know about what he had been through? But they repented when Jonah came. Jesus has done so much before them. He's done so much before us. We see more than they did. Are we willing truly to believe? And what I mean by that is are we acting like we believe? The queen of the south got no sign, but she had come to see Solomon's wisdom. That was enough for her to believe. The, the Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus said, they would have believed. If they'd seen half the signs that were done in Capernaum, a little tiny town, they would have believed. Jesus did a lot of signs in Capernaum. In fact, the most that we have registered, he did in Capernaum. And Jesus said, you're going to be judged more harshly than Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were called to witness, both in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. Matthew 12 is our context. The question remains, as we hold the Bible up and as we think about our own lives, what in the world are we waiting for? What sign are we seeking? We may not put it that way. We might not say, Jesus, just show me one more thing and then I'll believe. But our procrastination in serving him, our lethargic attitude in doing his will, somewhat belies the fact that we're looking for just one more thing, one, something else to motivate me. Just, just let, let me see one more. Let me see your grace one more time. Let me see something else. If that's what it takes, we won't believe. If we're not willing to believe in what we've already got in hand and all that he's already done, if his goodness has not called us to repentance, then the last day when his judgment comes, it'll be too late. We'll repent. It'll be too late. He will be glorified on the last day. 
as he's raised up Jesus to be the name that's above all names, that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Is yours confessing? Are you bowing today? Or are you saying, just one more thing? Just show me one more thing. I don't say these things because I believe that we are unbelievers. But the Pharisees didn't think they were either. (laughs) Does our life prove in its consistency that we are believers? Are we living in accordance with the truth? Or are we testing God? (laughs) Are we saying, just one more, just one more thing? (laughs) Let's give ourselves to the Lord. If you are not a Christian, we want to help you with that today. You can come and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can bow your knee before Him and submit to His will being baptized, having your sins washed away, and to start a new life in His presence. He's given you plenty of evidence that He is who He says He is. There's lots we can read about and study about with you. We'd love to do that. If you are a Christian, but you're acting like a Pharisee or a scribe, you're, simply, you're always seeking for that one more thing. You're not willing to act on what you've already been given. We want to encourage you to change that attitude. We want to help you with that. We're, we're brought together to hold each other's hands up as we serve. If we can help you today, please let it be known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.